Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Ministries International. We value the Word of God as an instrument of growth in our lives, using it to mend our ways, align our thinking, and ultimately bring restoration. We trust that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Today I want to talk to you about something which may seem a little bit... I'm going to talk to you about a concept that is familiar to us all, the Kingdom of God, and we're going to work our way through that. I want to talk to you today about Our Victorious King. If you want to give a title to the message, you can call it Our Victorious King. And uh, if I had to say to you, what does that mean to you? What does the Kingdom of God mean to you? There was a time when the disciples were walking with Jesus. It's recorded in Matthew 6, verse 9 to 10. And they say to him, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And we're all so familiar with the Lord's Prayer. It says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What did Jesus mean when he said those words? Let your kingdom come. And let your will be done. Now, I could spend some time, as I have perhaps in the past, explaining to you what is the kingdom of God. What does it look like? How does it work? But I want to approach it from a completely different point of view today. Because I want to start by explaining to you some of the difficulties Jesus had in explaining and getting an, giving his people an understanding of what his kingdom really looked like. Why he struggled. And... And as we grapple through all of that, I think our understanding of who and what the kingdom of God is all about will grow and our, our expectations will grow exponentially as well. As I said, Jesus, wherever he went, he preached the message or the gospel of the kingdom. Again, he didn't preach the gospel of salvation. Why? Because salvation wasn't an end in itself. It was just the beginning. It was the first step. So often when we look at the cross or the image of the cross, we remember our, the salvation story. We remember everything Jesus did, that our sins are forgiven. But this, the cross is not an end. It's not like, okay, Jesus has forgiven me. I'm now saved. I'm delivered. And that's it. Hallelujah. Praise God. I now have my ticket to heaven. The cross is not the end. The cross is just the doorway. It's the entrance into a whole new realm of life. Not just the living as we do from day to day, but having the life and the life force of God be within us. It's transformational. It changes who we are and ought to change the way we look at the world around us. It means that when Jesus saved us, there's something so much more happened than just forgiving of our sins. The very kingdom of God was deposited in our hearts uh, and and. And the life that we now live is a journey. It's a journey of discovery. It's a journey of discovery of who is Jesus. What was he really like? It's a journey of discovering every gift and promise that God has made to us. It's discovering how to work this out in my marriage, in my family, in my parenting, within my friends. How do I work this out in my finances, in my work scenarios? Many different avenues or settings in which this needs to be expropriated. And this is how we discover the kingdom. The kingdom is not sort of just a once-off thing that has happened. 
It's a progressive thing. It has moments where, it, where we see it so clearly and other moments where it seems almost elusive. And you say to me, Michael, you're not really doing a very good job of, of explaining the kingdom right now because it seems like you're a little bit all over the place and it's there and it's not. And you know what? Jesus said some things about the kingdom. When he walked the earth, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he said, the kingdom of God is here. And other, at other times he said, the kingdom of God will come. And so we have this dynamic of the kingdom of God that is here, it's present, it's now, it's just now, and it's in the future. And this whole understanding that is, is, is far bigger than we can just define in one single moment. The, reason, the main reason Jesus struggled so much to, under, to explain and to get people to understand the message of the kingdom is because of the preconceived ideas that the people at the time had. The Jews had misguided expectations of Jesus. And that's where I want to begin. I think once we begin to understand the Jewish mindset in terms of what they were expecting and the actual fulfillment of what took place in the coming of the kingdom through Jesus Christ, where those two understandings converge, we find a place of richness. So I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 2. And the beginning of Matthew is the story of Jesus' miraculous conception. Uh, it talks about his lineage. Um, and it talks about, you know, when he was born. And Matthew chapter 2 brings us and gives us a little idea of what the expectation was at the time. Matthew 2 from verse 1 says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who had been born king of the Jews? They were looking for a king, and they knew who they were looking for. For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ or the Messiah or the anointed one, the prophesied one, was to be born. Now, we understand at the time Herod was king over the region. He was obviously under Caesar, part of the Roman Empire, although Herod was a Jew. But he felt threatened as the king that, that, this, that there was a new king rising up, somebody who'd been prophesied who was going to come in and be king of the Jews. He, there was a challenger to his throne. There was a new king. Uh, how many of you have seen the movie The Lion King? Most of us by now. One of the greatest Disney movies of all time. Uh, and it talks about this, this new king that comes in, Simba, and the king that challenges Mufa, uh, uh, Scar, who challenges Mufasa's authority. And it's this, this battle of kingship. And you can kind of see a similar picture bringing itself out here. There's a king who's in, who's in command, who's in charge. The prophecy, he knows because he's a Jew, he understands the prophecies of the new king coming in and he suddenly feels threatened. That's why Jesus had all those babies of that age killed. So we already have an expectation of a new king coming, an earthly king who would come and who would reign. Throughout scripture, Jesus is often referred to as the son of David. And that's quite a significant thing. I'll give you some examples. You can go look them up in your own time. I, for the sake of time, I won't go into all the references. But Matthew 9.27, two blind men referred to Jesus as the son of David. They were the, 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 by the woman of Canaan, 
also referred to, to Jesus in Matthew 15.22 as the son of David. The blind men at Jericho, Matthew 20 verse 30. But I think for me, perhaps the best articulation of this is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And the people are lining the streets. They're throwing their garments onto the, onto the path. They're throwing palm leaves onto the path. An entire entourage is set up to welcome in the king. Here is Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David. Now that term, the son of David, is a big thing. Why? Because David was the liberator of Israel. David was the greatest king that the nation of Israel had ever seen. He brought Israel to a place of peace. He conquered all their enemies. We understand what David went through himself with Saul. And, you know, David and Goliath, he defeated Goliath. David slayed how many thousands of men and with his mighty men. And there's so many incredible stories of the things that David did. But David brought the nation of Israel to a place where they had conquered and had victory over all of their enemies and they had peace in the kingdom for the first time. David also made provision for the building of the temple. He didn't build it himself. We know that. Solomon, his son, built the temple. But David is the one who made provision. He left him all the resources that he needed. All the gold, all the wood, all the silver, all the bronze, all the materials were there. So when they start referring to Jesus as the son of David, their expectation and their understanding is that the Messiah that is coming is going to be one who is like David. He will come and liberate us. You, you understand that at the time Jesus was born, or at the time Jesus lived, the whole of Israel was under Roman occupation. They were under a Caesar. They were under a king. They were under uh, a, a forced rule. They were under the dominion of another empire. And the promise was that a Messiah, an anointed one, would come and bring them salvation. Where they were captives in their own land, somebody would come in and bring deliverance. Uh, the famous Bible scholar N.T. Wright <clears throat> said this. He said, The salvation spoken of in the Jewish sources of this period has to do with the rescue from national enemies, the restoration of national symbols, and a state of shalom in which every man will sit under his vine or fig tree. I want to just break that down a little bit. Uh, first thing is that the understanding is that this has to do with national enemies, national symbols. And you can understand that the, if you understand the, the promises of, of God all the way through, that you are my chosen people, you are, uh, I am the God, your God and you will be my people. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. As we know, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. He had the 12, tri 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And there's a promise for this special group of people. And they had an incredibly nationalistic way of seeing themselves. Uh, a nationalistic way of thinking where God was there to benefit them. And he was going to establish Israel, his holy people, to rule over certainly Israel, but also over the whole world. But there's something that N.T. Wright says. He makes a statement. He says that this salvation that the Messiah will bring will bring a state of shalom. It's a state of the peace of God. Shalom. Internal peace. Peace in society. No striving. No lack. It's all kind of wrapped up in that word. But then he says this. 
in which every man will sit under his own vine or fig tree. Now this phrase is this phrase is incredibly significant. I'm going to give you a few significant phrases tonight. The reason they're significant is because when we understand the context of them through the history and the journey of the people of Israel, they gain new life and understanding and we, we understand to a greater level what is meant by them. There is one point in the nation of Israel's history, the highest point, which comes after the rule of David and during the rule of Solomon, before he lost the plot and went astray, where the nation of Israel was completely at peace and 1 Kings chapter 4 Verse 24 and 25 describes this period in Israel's history. It says this, For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tipsah even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river. And he had peace, shalom, on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree. From Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Why is that phrase so significant? Each man under his vine and each man under his fig tree. You see, when you come out of oppression, you understand that when you're an oppressed people, you have no land of your own. You have no home of your own. You have no place of belonging. It's one of the reasons that the land debate and the land issue in our country is such a sensitive one. We're a country that has come out of dominion of, of a government, of a force, which was ungodly in the way it, it, it treated its people. And the same kind of hope we see in our country now. What do they want? They want land expropriation. Why? So that every man can have his own place, his own home, his own rights, his own fig tree, his own vine. We understand in Middle Eastern terms what that means. It's very interesting. When you go to Cyprus, you've got to understand Cyprus is a stone's throw away from Israel. It's a stone's throw away from Syria. But everywhere you go, in every village, every house has a vine and a fig tree and a lemon tree. Those three things. And as you walk around the villages, you've got capers, you've got origanum, you've got fennel, you've got uh, uh, artichokes. All these kinds of things just grow wild there. Like We call them weeds. That's how prolific they are. You go outside and you pick your herbs for the night. But every man has his fig tree and Every man's fig tree is the best and has the nicest figs, as you can imagine. And every man has his lemon tree, and every man has his vine that produces grapes in its season. It's a place of belonging where each one has a home, each one is valued, and each one has something of it that belongs to him. There's peace. He's not, he's not dependent on anybody else. Um, and so it's that place of, of peace where, where you're, you're not threatened and you actually have something of value. Now, the expectation that the people of Israel had of the coming Messiah is that he would once again return Israel to that glorious state that David left it in and that Solomon brought it to, where it was prosperous, it was the most powerful probably in, in, in the area, most blessed at least in the area. And we, we, we know this, the story of uh, the Queen of, of Sheba who comes over and looks at all of this and marvels at Solomon's great wisdom and the temple and all of these things. So what was their expectation? We see it, and I want you to turn there in your Bibles with me, please, in the book of Micah. Micah chapter 4, verse 1 to 5. Now, who is Micah? We understand Micah is one of the minor prophets, but he's prophesying about the Messiah that is to come. It's interesting that any 
every book that is in the Bible, what they call is the canon of Scripture. The canon means the measurement. There's, there's, there's a standard that, that, they, that needed to be met in order for a book to be included in the Bible. Whether it's a prophetic book, a poetic book, a historical book, whatever it may be. That standard is that every book of the Bible, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, points to Jesus as the Messiah. That's, that's the measure. That's one of the things that had to be a criteria that had to be met for anything to be included in the Bible. It needed to point to Jesus and identify and confirm him as the Messiah. So here we have Micah, a minor prophet, and he is prophesying about the Messiah that is to come. Now we've got to understand, remember this is after the time of David and Solomon's reign and rule. And we see here, Micah chapter 4, I'll read verses 1 through 5. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. What's he talking about? He's talking about Jerusalem, the, the symbol of Israel's strength, the symbol of, Israel, of God's sovereignty and of his power. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. So you get the idea of this peace, the shalom that's coming in. War is over, there's no more fighting against each other. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of our Lord, our God, forever and ever. So again you see this picture, this phrase coming out, that each man shall have his fig tree, have his place, his vine, where he is free. He is free from oppression and is not dependent upon anybody else. He will come to a place of liberty. So we have this in, 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 the, in the Jewish people to whom Jewish, uh, the, Jesus was sent, this idea of what they are looking for. And it's very interesting that so many times Jesus tries to get pushed into situations according to the people's expectations. We see it after Jesus feeds the 5,000 in John chapter 6. Verses 14 to 15. So Jesus feeds the 5,000. The, the, the disciples collect the 12 baskets full of leftovers. And obviously the people are quite amazed. They, they can, they, this miracle was astounding. Five loaves, two fishes, 5,000 men. Crazy. And so John 6 verse 14 and 15 says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is come into the world. What do they mean by the prophet, the Messiah, the one anointed and sent by God? Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. It's interesting that the greatest resistance Jesus experienced in trying to usher in the kingdom of God was the expectations of the people he had been sent to. They wanted to establish him as a king who ruled from the top down. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. 
you see the same picture when Jesus laments over Jerusalem. Matthew 23, verse 37 to 39. I know I'm giving you a lot of scripture today. You don't have to turn to it all, but I'm, I'm painting a picture for you. So bear with me. Matthew 23, verse 37 to 39 says, Jesus is looking over the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that again is another significant statement. So here's the significant statements we've had so far. Son of David created an expectation that Jesus... We understand that Jesus came. He was from the lineage of David and that's part of what it means. But it's got a little bit more to it as well. We're going to look at that. Each one under his own vine and under his own fig tree. The promise of the blessing, of deliverance, of shalom. And here we have another one. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why is that significant? Here's why. I'm going to explain it to you. Matthew 22 so just the chapter before, verses 41 to 46. Jesus, I'll give you the context here. Jesus is having conversations with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He just had an argument with the Pharisees. If you don't know the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I'll explain it to you. They were both in, in, in leadership, in, in, uh, in Judaic, Judaic leadership. The one believed in life after death and the other ones didn't. The, Pharise the Pharisees believed that there was life after death. That's why they called the Far ICs. They saw into the future there's life after death. And the Sadducees believed that there was no life after death. That's why they were sad, you see. So the Sadducees uh, had just had a, had a conversation with Jesus and he kind of confounded them. And now the Pharisees are there. And so while we pick it up here, Matthew 22 verse 41 while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Very interesting. Jesus asked this question. Jesus asked the question. And they said to him, The son of David. Now, wouldn't you think that's a good answer? Isn't that true? Isn't that he was, how he was prophesied? But Jesus is now starting to dismantle the expectations that the people have on him and how he would come as the Messiah, what he would look like. Jesus responds in verse 43, he said to them, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is referring here to Psalm 110 that David wrote. It's actually the most referred to Psalm in the New Testament. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. For from that day on, uh, so nor, oh, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Jesus, did, they didn't question Jesus. because, and, and Jesus did, you know, it's interesting that Jesus asked this question. When you understand the way people thought in the time, Today, in our modern understanding, we would consider somebody or we would esteem somebody as wise or as learned by the way in which they answer questions. They can give a whole argument with a, a tight argument. It's well thought out. It's well structured. 
Uh, they can answer questions in such a way that it's sort of watertight. The way that they esteemed leadership and, and wisdom back in, in Jesus' time was not according to how you answered questions, but was according to the questions that you asked. If you could ask a question that led to an answer that was not necessarily clear-cut, the, the Jewish way of thinking encapsulated all of life and wasn't sort of compartmentalized like our Greek mindset way of thinking is. And so we see Jesus asking these questions and really giving them a rough time because they don't quite know how to answer him anymore. It seems like whatever answer they give him, they think it's the right answer and somehow Jesus turns it around and adds more to it. So here we see the, the Pharisees saying, we, we see you as the son of David and Jesus saying, well, if I'm the son of David, why does David then call me Lord? That doesn't make sense, does it? And they're confounded. They don't, they don't understand how can David call him Lord if he's the son of David. What Jesus is really saying in, this, in asking this question and answering this question is that ref, he's making a point that referring to me as the son of David is not enough. I am also the son of God. I am the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the reflection or the image of the Lord, anointed and authorized to carry out his mandates. The thinking was that if Jesus was the son of David, he would come in the spirit of David and establish a kingdom the way David did. I want to say that again because it's important. And we've touched on this already. The thinking was if Jesus came in the spirit of David, in other words, as the son of David, what does it mean to be the son? It means to be the representation of. From the line, but also the representation of. Then he would come in the spirit of David and establish a kingdom the way David did. What does that mean? He'd rescue the people from their enemies. He'd restore the national symbols. And he'd usher in the state of Shalom, in which each man had his fig tree and each man had his vine. That was their expectation. And if we follow this line of thinking, and we apply it in the same way to what Jesus said, it's not enough to call me the son of David. Actually, I'm the son of God. That's a huge statement. Why? Because the implications of that line of thinking mean that if he's truly the son of God, it means that he had come in the spirit of God to establish his kingdom on earth. So it's more than just the son of David. He is the son of God. And so he comes not in the image or the likeness of David, but in the image and in the likeness of God. We see this beautifully illustrated in Luke chapter 4. Please turn there with me. Luke 4, verse 16 to 21. Luke chapter 4, from verse 16 to 21. It says this, So he, speaking of Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the, on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now let's just pause for a moment. We've got to understand, we already discussed this. The books of the prophets all pointed towards Jesus, towards Jesus and were written so that we could recognize the Messiah when he came. They are there to reveal and give us expectation of what is to come, and also the ability to recognize it. So here's Jesus, he's reading a book of prophecy about himself. Verse 18, he's reading from Isaiah, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. In other words, the year of Jubilee, the year in which all debts are forgiven. People are set free from bondages of all kinds. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That's very important. Where did Jesus go sit down? In the synagogues in those times, there was a special chair that was reserved for the Messiah when he came. It was a symbolic chair. It, it, gave the, the, it, it, it demonstrated the expectation of the coming Messiah. And it was reserved just for him. So Jesus reads the scripture all about the Messiah, hands the book back and goes to sit in that chair. And then it says, and, all, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. As if to say, what are you doing? You're sitting in the Messiah's chair. And Jesus began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What was he saying? He is saying, I am the promised Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am He. And of course, the people rose up and tried to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> that was what happened. They didn't embrace him and go, oh, hallelujah, we reckon. No, they took, him, they took him out and they tried to throw him off a cliff. Blasphemy, how dare you claim to be the Son of God? But you see, if Jesus were just recognized as the son of David, he'd have to bring in a kingdom the way David did. It was imperative that the people saw Jesus as the son of God that came in his likeness to usher in his kingdom because that kingdom and the way it is expressed looks very different to what their expectations were in terms of the kingdom that David had. This was the main thrust of Jesus' ministry. Yes, Jesus was liberator. He is the one who came to set the people free. He is the one who came to bring shalom. But not to external circumstances first. To hearts first. You see, this is the mistake that, that the people of, of, of or that the Jews made, that the people of Israel made, that they couldn't recognize Jesus, the Messiah. And I want to say this to you. This is the mistake that still so many within the church today are making. How many Christians and believers pray every single day? God, we need a Christian government. We need a Christian president. Is that a bad prayer? Well, not in and of itself. A Christian president, sure, that would be a good thing. Hopefully he lives with righteousness and he lives with justice. But when you, and, and he establishes righteousness and justice, which are you know the foundations of God's throne. But if you actually start unraveling what they really mean by praying that, the thinking in truth is, God, we want a Christian government so that we can have Christian legislation and Christian laws so that we can legislate and govern this country according to Christian principles and thereby force other people to live the life the way we feel it should be lived. In other words, our expectation is still that God would establish government, politicians, to bring His, earth, uh, his kingdom to earth, to bring His will into the earth. And legislate and put laws in place to make sure that it happens. Interesting that Jesus never did that. It's interesting to read that Jesus had very, very little to say about politics. Jesus had precious little to say about slavery and human rights and 
all different kind of, of ideologies. Jesus didn't say very much about any of those things at all. What did Jesus talk about? He talked about the kingdom of God. He didn't talk about legislation. He didn't talk about a new king that came to dominate and to crush all the enemy. His kingdom was very, very different. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. And we'll start to get an idea of what Jesus' kingdom was really like. Luke chapter 18. We'll read from verse 13. Sorry, from verse 18 to 21. And Jesus is talking and, and then he said, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? So let's just pause for a moment. Jesus is asking a question. Why is he asking this question? We've already established why. Because he's trying to draw a parallel to show what the, that the kingdom of God is different from the kingdoms of the earth and from the people's expectations. So this is what God's kingdom is like. What, what can I compare it to to make it easy for you? He says, it's like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden and it grew and became a large tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and, hood, and hid in three measures of oil. Uh, sorry, three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And Jesus begins to paint the picture of a kingdom and a king that rules, not through domination. But just like leaven, he plants a seed and that seed begins to grow and begins to grow and grow and affect the whole thing around it. So when you compare the, the leaven, that's a really good example. The kingdom of God, instead of a list of laws that are imposed upon me, Jesus said, I have put my laws in their hearts. I've written them in there. I put it in their minds and I've written it in their hearts. Book of Romans tells us that the love of God, who God is, the essence of who He is, has been shed abroad in our hearts. In other words, He gives us a deposit, His Spirit, the seal of the covenant that we have with Him. And that is like leaven. It begins to grow and it begins to affect every area of our lives. And we grow and we grow and more and more into the likeness of the king. You see, we become sons of God, not sons of David. Not those who will come and by the sword and by force get people saved and get them to do what they're supposed to do. But we become sons of God. And he begins to transform us into his likeness so that we can be his representatives. The same as Jesus said, it's not enough just to be the son of David. I'm a son of God. I come in His likeness. And therefore I usher in His kingdom. Folks, God has made you and I His sons and daughters. And He's deposited His kingdom within our hearts. As that grows, my life begins to take on more and more of His likeness. And then guess what? Guess what? He begins to sow me out. I become the seed. I become the seed that dies. And brings forth new life. What does it mean? I die to myself. Anyone who desires to keep his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will gain it. And that everlasting life. And you become the seed that God sows out. So that his kingdom can be sown in there. And a little leaven gets sown there. And a little leaven gets sown there. And as the leaven gets sown, this kingdom begins to grow. The Bible says of the increase of his kingdom, 
there shall be no end. The Bible also says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Hebrews 10, 16, as I, as I read to you early on. This is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I said it's in Romans. I lied. Forgive me. It's in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, 16. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. We get the idea and the understanding that the kingdom of God, although it is a kingdom of liberation, it is a kingdom of shalom. That liberation is not from people. It is from the power of sin, the power of sickness, the power of death, that these should no longer exercise or have any hold on us or any power or authority over us. But that we should live in the state of shalom, internally, long before we see shalom externally. So the kingdom of God is completely different to the kingdom. It's a bottom-up kingdom, or I think the best way of putting it is that it's an inside-out kingdom. The last scripture I'm going to read for you is from the book of Romans, chapter, uh, from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. And it's verse 15 to 23. And here the Apostle Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. And his prayer is that they would have a revelation of this kingdom, this yeast, this thing that is going on that's been deposited in their lives, that they would have a revelation of it. Because when this begins to grow and it begins to be sown out, that is how the kingdom of God finds manifestation. So in Romans, one, uh, sorry, Ephesians 1, 15, it says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, and what are the exceeding riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places. Far above, so here we see the king, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head of all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 1 John 3 verse 8 says it this way, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. We have a victorious king. We have one who has conquered all the powers of darkness. And that victory needs to be realized, first of all, in our hearts, before it can be sown or worked out anywhere else. And this is what this, the, the Apostle Paul is praying for. That you might have a revelation of the kingdom that has been sown into your life. It's a kingdom message that has been prophesied from the very beginning. That Jesus would reign on the earth. How does he reign? Well, he starts by reigning in your heart and in my heart. Not over us, not dominating over us. Not through laws and legislations, but by transforming us more and more into his likeness. 
It's a, it's a kingdom in which the victory has already been won. And God is looking for vessels through which He can manifest that victory and bring it to bear in the world around us. That's how the kingdom of God begins to grow. So, I've shared these things with you because I find that I found that in studying this and understanding all the expectations and all the build-up to the arrival of Jesus, so often our thinking is so similar to that of the Jews of the time. That Jesus would come and make my life okay and give me my fig tree and give me my piece of dirt and give me my little inheritance and my peace. Whereas the kingdom of God's message is so completely different. Jesus says, I'm going to come and set you free so that you can go and represent me to the world around you. And all those who are hurting and all those who are oppressed, you can be the agent through which salvation comes. Obviously it comes through Jesus, but you go and you represent Him. Thank you for listening to this message. For additional resources or more information about this ministry, come and visit us at alphaomegaint.org.za.